Welcome to the 245th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. As a journalist who's covered agriculture for over three decades, I'm fascinated by how language evolves when it comes to describing various practices, systems, and principles. For example, back in the 1990s, soil quality was all the rage. Now, soil health is what has farmers and others excited about the potential for making agriculture economically and ecologically viable in the long term. Recently, I've been noticing a trend where farmers and others are replacing the term sustainable agriculture with the phrase regenerative agriculture. Personally, I first heard the term regenerative being used by Gabe Brown and other pioneers in the soil health movement while I was on a reporting trip in North Dakota. Their argument was that it wasn't good enough to just sustain our current soil ecology and the farming systems that rely on it. We need methods that regenerate and bring the land back to life, thus making it better than ever. This has spawned a bit of a debate over which term better fits innovative, environmentally friendly farming systems, sustainable or regenerative. In some cases, the debate has gotten a bit contentious, with at least one agriculture leader in Congress dismissing the term regenerative as a bit too fringy for his tastes. Well, it turns out this is not a new debate. Back in the 1970s, a group of influential people were having a deep discussion about what term to use when describing a more ecologically friendly form of farming. And Dana Jackson was in the midst of that debate. With her former husband, Wes Jackson, Dana co-founded the Land Institute in 1976. From its beginning, the Land Institute was seeking to help develop a type of agriculture that would, as Dana puts it, stop destroying the elements it relies on to survive and thrive. Around the time the Institute was launched, people like the Jacksons, author Wendell Berry, and organic agriculture pioneer Robert Rodell began discussing what label should be applied to a more ecologically healthy approach to farming. Dana thought a lot about language, words, and cultural change, given that she was the editor of the Quarterly Land Report and played a role in two influential books, New Roots for Agriculture and Meeting the Expectations of the Land. Dana later came to the Land Stewardship Project as a board member and associate director. During that extremely productive 25-year period, she wrote and spoke frequently about ways to advance and support a more sustainable form of agriculture and help revamp the Land Stewardship Letter as a source of in-depth articles and commentaries. In 2002, she and her daughter, Laura Jackson, co-edited the book, The Farm is Natural Habitat, Reconnecting Food Systems with Ecosystems. Full disclosure, Dana was also a key driver behind the book I wrote in 2018, Wildly Successful Farming, Sustainability, and the New Agricultural Land Ethic. Today, Dana is still quite active promoting ecological farming. She's working to support local food production through her community's food co-op, and has been instrumental in developing a climate change initiative at her church. That initiative is promoting, among other things, the role soil-friendly farming can play in sequestering greenhouse gases. I recently traveled to Dana's home in Stillwater, Minnesota, to talk about the regenerative versus sustainable debate. She started out providing some background on why the word sustainable went out back in the 1970s, and the role soil health and community health played in forming those early discussions around what to call this new form of agriculture. As Dana makes clear, it's not just about the land, but the people living and working the land. The beginning of it was a realization of how much soil was being lost. 
in the 1970s. We started the Land Institute in 1976, and there was a lot of information about farming and uh, how much soil we were losing at that time. The Land Institute was dedicated to a search for alternatives in agriculture, energy, shelter, and waste. We were looking for systems that could last over a long period of time without destroying the earth. We focused more on agriculture as we began learning more about Kansas agriculture, meeting a lot of farmers who were kind of drawn to where, where we were. Wes came up with this concept of we needed a permanent agriculture. The model for that would be the prairie. So in New Roots for Agriculture, he lays all that out. There's the prairie, which has existed for so many eons in the landscape where we were. It wasn't disrupted by plowing, by mm -hmm. tearing up the soil. It absorbed water. It didn't need chemicals uh, for pesticides because the complex ecological patterns that had been developed accommodated both uh, prey and, uh, and, and predators in a balance. So this was the model of an ecosystem that had survived and was highly productive. And so in a search for a permanent agriculture, we looked at the prairie and its elements and its, its um, operation as a model for what a new agriculture could be that could be permanent. And we realized it was extremely idealistic, but we started looking for funds to think about how we could approach this, and we would always start out that modern agriculture is destroying the elements that it depends upon. It's destroying the soil and the water system and farms and, and people and rural communities. And even then, in the 70s, you could see the small communities going, getting smaller, the farmers leaving the land, the farms getting bigger, the equipment getting bigger, and the soil being lost, the water getting dirtier. So we were looking for what models could be developed that would be a permanent, permanent. Now, this was before the use of the word sustainable. And, and the gardening we did and the farmers that we were attracted to were organic farmers because those farmers were um, not using chemicals. They had the rotations of their crops. They had worked out fertility pretty well through the use of alfalfa rotations. They had a sense of great attachment and devotion to their farms and their land, and almost a religious caring of that was different from modern agriculture. Mm -hmm. So we were attracted to organic farmers. We became acquainted with Robert Rodale, who was the son of the Rodale, who started the Rodale uh, Farm, Rodale Institute. Well, it wasn't the Rodale Institute. He started the, the Rodale um, uh, Organic Farming Magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, but this was Robert Rodale, the son of the founder. And they had been uh, working on improving crops, but using the organic method. And when the institute was started, the Rodale Institute was really devoted to how uh, how farmers farming the crops that were in demand at the time, which is corn, soybeans, wheat, all of those, could grow them organically, and they would rotate them. And 
they were looking at that as a way of taking care of the soil and it would not uh, lose its quality. And they weren't just talking about fertility. Mm -hmm. They were talking about the soil structure. I don't know what the words were used at the time, but I've talked to a lot of organic farmers back in the 70s who picked up soil in their hands and showed me what the ideal was. So I was looking for that in my vegetable garden, too, and composting and putting on all kinds of organic matter. The word sustainable sort of crept into our use because it was pointed out quite often when Wes would go out and give talks about how we would develop these alternative systems that would be much better for the future. They would say, well, permanent isn't a good term because that doesn't allow scientific scientific discovery and evolution and improvement. It's just permanent may, may sounds like it's just going to be stuck. You're going to yeah. come up with something and that's what's going to be. It's going to be kind of set in stone kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we were looking for other words and somehow uh, the word sustainable was kind of out there. It was just sort of being used and I don't know who first actually used it, but we picked it up and popularized it at the Land Institute. We began using it a lot, talking, this is the kind of agriculture we want, something we can sustain far into the future. We can sustain it without destroying the soil and the water and the people and the communities. That's what we want. We want to sustain it. And at the same time, Robert Rodale was focusing more on soil and uh, how organic matter added into the soil regenerates the microorganisms and builds up the life of the soil and makes it more fertile. He was focused more on growing the crops and the fertility of the soil. We were focused on a lot more broader social context as well as the soil itself and the land. And so the word sustainable could stretch farther mm -hmm. in all the aspects of the kind of agriculture, the ideal agriculture that we were talking about. We were idealizing and popularizing and having people discuss what it might be. And that was part of a land institute. It was bringing people there with ideas and stimulating other ideas and saying things there that you wouldn't say at Kansas State University because you dared to dream and think broader and deeper and more religiously in a sense. So we had discussions with Robert Rodale talking about what was needed in society at the time and uh, he would say that he thought the word regenerative explained much better what it is we were seeking. And we would say we thought sustainable would explain it better. And we would have <laughs> long discussions about this on, on the telephone. And um, one of the things that, one of the arguments in discussing the word that Wes Jackson had was that the word sustainable rolls off the tongue <laughs> easier than regenerative. Mm -hmm. And the other one, one was it's loose in the culture, you can't bring it back. So the word sustainable was picked up and it was used to the extreme to apply to lots of things over time that, you know, by the 90s, the most ridiculous uses of the word sustainable were being seen. Yeah. But that's my history with mm -hmm. the word sustainable and yeah. regenerative. Well, I think that's really good background. And, and I think one of the things it'd be interesting to touch on is 
this going a little bit deeper into the, as you said, in some ways, it could have been just about any word. It, it, as long Once it's loose on society, it, it's the thing that's associated with a certain way of agriculture or a certain way of doing things. But let's look at sustainable and regenerative, the difference between them, because sustainable is kind of connotes you're sustaining in some ways the status quo, or you're sustaining something that was good uh, and trying to make it so that it is something you can keep doing for a long time. But one, one of the first times I heard the term regenerative used instead of sustainable was at a soil health workshop the Land Stewardship Project was putting on, and it was a young farmer who was integrating livestock into his family's crop operation. And he said, I just don't want to sustain this. I want to regenerate it. I I feel like I want to do regenerative agriculture. And then I started hearing it more and more, and I realized that that's kind of getting loose out into the culture a little bit, at least least a certain uh, area of agriculture. And so I think we need to talk a little bit about that we're not just looking at, and this is something that you were very focused on back in the 70s and, and throughout your career, not just tweaking the current system of corn and beans. And that's where maybe regenerative can kind of get a little deeper at a real revolutionary way of looking at agriculture, whereas sustainable or sustaining, it could mean, well, we're trying to sustain this corn soybean system, make it at least environmentally sound enough that we can keep doing it for a couple more decades. But it, you were really looking at not just sustaining that system or tweaking it, the current kind of status quo, but really revolutionizing the way we did agriculture a little bit. We were talking systemic agriculture, and that's one of the things about the word regenerative, which is really great. And where it began is just with the soil, regenerating. The, the farmer wants his systems to be regenerative, his, the way he farms his crops. Mm-hmm. You're, if, if regenerative is loose in the culture and farmers are inspired by it, and that's the term that they feel explains what they're doing, all the more power to them to use it and talk about it and and make it theirs. But I don't think that when we talked about sustainable agriculture, we weren't focused just on some systems of soil regeneration. We Mm -hmm. were talking about much broader concepts. And in the 90s, when I started at Land Stewardship Project, we were using the definition of sustainable agriculture is ecologically sound, socially just, financially viable, and humane. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I started to work for Land Stewardship Project, we were kind of thinking in that concept because LSP, in contrast to the Land Institute, which was more research-oriented and and into actually the biological, ecological part of it, even though we talked about it in all these broad terms. LSP had programs. They mm-hmm. had policy programs, and they were working in a way when they need, where they needed that broad definition. We were working with policy issues, and mm-hmm. so you had to talk about financial, viable, financially viable. And, and Ron Cruz had... He was influenced a lot by those discussions you guys were having back, oh yeah, especially in the eighties when he was look he because he Ron Cruz co-founded LSP with Victor Ray and he visited the Land Institute, so he was probably hearing a lot of this discussion around what is truly a sustainable agriculture. How can we kind of just not tweak around the edges, kind of thing, but really look at getting deep into changing it up and making it sustainable for everybody. 
Yeah, Ron spent a lot of time with, at the Land Institute. I mean, he was down there for, we invited him for different events mm -hmm. and Prairie Festival. And, and I went on the board of Land Stewardship Project in 1982. So I was coming up here for board meetings from Kansas or, uh, until I moved up here in 1994. Yeah, well, I think one of the points you made was really key in that you were not looking at just, oh, how can we make it the soil, higher quality soil, or make it so it doesn't erode, or whatever. You were looking at kind of the real big picture, and, and I remember you you had given me some materials to look at, some old land reports, and some other writings that had been done at that time, and some stuff that had influenced what you folks were talking about, as well as some books like New Roots for Agriculture that uh, you had worked on, and yeah, me, that book, the meeting the expectations of the land, and one of the things that it, it really, and I think this is something LSP is trying to kind of uh, get the word out on and kind of influence the narrative around is whatever you call it, regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture, also includes people, and you know the quote from I think Wendell Berry Wendell. is is that it in, it's not just about deplete the soil but it doesn't deplete people right. <laughs> it's, it's good for the people it doesn't I think one of the things you had said to me and I don't know if it was from Wendell or Wes Jackson or who is it doesn't destroy the resources upon which it depends including people I mean that's right. a really right. important piece to include right. on that that's a really thing a good thing to get at, kind of get at that core of it it's not just this me mechanistic okay we're going to make sure soil has a certain fertility level and it's not eroded in a certain level but how is this how are people who are part of this ecological community, how are they served on this a little bit? But from the beginning, the idea was not uh, to have continue having annual crops. And that was the culprit that Wes pointed to in looking at what was destroying our country is that plowing of the soil and the planting of one monocrop after another but plowing and disturbing the soil. So the really important concept in the beginning was developing an agriculture where you would not have to plow the soil, where you'd have deep roots. And that's why the book was called New Roots for Agriculture. And I think regenerative agriculture is being practiced by a lot of the farmers excited about it now. They are, they are decreasing the, the amount of plowing uh, with no-till agriculture, and they are planting cover crops to keep roots in the soil. So some of the concepts are there that we had in the beginning. But what's missing is the ecosystem processes that we were striving for, and that would mean that the plants working together would provide fertility for each other, would provide the pest control because of the systemic long-evolved processes that had been developed that mm -hmm. were stable. And that's the kind of thing we were looking for. The kind of thing, in a way, that's been talked about so much in recent years about forests, when they've discovered that trees interact in ways. And we knew that was happening on the prairie. We could see that. Mm -hmm. It didn't get the research that the agronomic challenges got. If you're thinking about developing a, developing a crop, you're looking at seed yield, stock strength. You're looking at all kinds of you know uptake of nutrients, different questions, different problems. You could get research money from the USDA easier to do that kind of research than you can to get research on how 
prairie plants interact, which gives you the basic knowledge, then think about whether you could develop crops that could do that. That's much, much more difficult. The, the questions of how plants could work together in an ecological system, those are really hard questions. They're hard to get funded. That's been kind of left in the background. So we're not talking about the same sustainable agriculture that we talked about in the 70s. It's, it's changed over time. One of the things that's changed about agriculture in the most recent years is this real buzz around soil health. Mm-hmm. And this reminds me a little bit of when I first started LSP in the 1990s, there was a lot of excitement around soil quality. And Mostly, I, I, did, I wrote a couple articles on it, and what I figured out was who was most excited about the phrase soil quality and the idea of soil quality were soil scientists yeah. <laughs> and soil technicians with government agencies. Farmers kind of knew good soil when they saw it, but they weren't as interested in kind of this looking deeper into what made up good soil quality as much. And so it kind of, there was a lot of great resources developed and it just wasn't picked up by farmers and it kind of lulled. Well, then in recent years, I don't know, last five, six, seven years, there has just been a huge interest in soil health. And in this case, farmers are interested in it. And in some ways, they're leading the work on it. They're getting the, the scientists and the soil conservationists to kind of go back to the textbooks and figure out why certain things are happening, why farmers are able to build organic matter level in a period of time that they didn't think was possible in the past, that kind of thing. But one of the things you and, you and I had talked about at one time when we were talking about the difference between soil health and soil quality is, and why maybe soil health kind of really got people excited where soil quality didn't, was that soil health kind of connotes life. It yes. kind of, it has that idea. Talk a little bit about that. I think that's really interesting. It just seems obvious to me that you would get excited about something that has life. Especially, I think that they, um, the soil scientists have been really good about this. I think showing the microorganisms in the soil, talking about the weight and how many are in the soil and what kind they are, uh, it's, it's almost like discovering a new planet. You know, it's, you're not just talking about a dead substance there that crumbles right and looks the right color. You're talking about something exciting. So it has captured the imagination of, of farmers and other people. It also, to me, fits in really well with the, the whole broad system of a farming system that provides healthful food for people. Mm. And you do that by taking care of the earth, taking care of the land and the life on the land, which includes bees, mm-hmm. you know. We didn't think about bees, pollinators, as being important either a long time ago. I mean, not a long time ago, but uh, we did. I did beekeeping at the land, and we did talk about bees, and we were friends with beekeepers, but there wasn't all this understanding of how important to crops bees are and all the other native pollinators that are in the landscape. So um, that, I think, is connected a little bit that's a good concept because you talk about the health of communities, you talk about the health of the land, you talk about the health of the people that live on the land, and you talk about the health of the soil. It all has a much, the, the meaning is much more human and close to what you're thinking than the word quality. Mm-hmm. Quality is like, 
don't know. It's abstract, yeah. much more abstract. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting, Dana, how you, you talk about how soil health really gets at this. It, it kind of gets at this idea of regenerative rather than just sustaining a certain way of doing things. And it reminds me of that quote from Aldo Leopold. It's one of my favorite quotes. Is It's the most important, important characteristic of an organism is that capacity for internal self-renewal known as health. And he was talking about the land in general, but boy, could that touch on agriculture. That really, it, it really gets at this whole idea of regenerative, I think. I think he had agriculture in mind. I mean, he saw the growing of crops for food on the land as, he didn't see it as industry, mm-hmm. or it shouldn't be industry because you use the natural world to produce food. Yeah. So... Um, the capacity of the land to su- renew itself is is it's very much a part of both sustainable and regenerative. Yeah, yeah, and it gets at that idea too that as Leopold really preached was we shouldn't be separating uh, food production from the natural si- systems out there, the natural ecosystems and natural workings of the land, uh, and and shouldn't be separating people from those natural systems either, kind of thing. That we're the health of all of us is kind of dependent on everything being healthy. <laughs> but you know that after we started, after World War II and in the 50s when they started using chemicals and when, uh, you know, before World War II, there weren't that many tractors on the mm-hmm. land. But the whole uh, change in the 50s and 60s, especially the 60s, for machines and the reason Rachel Carson wrote her book was in 1962, we were at the height of using chemicals irresponsibly on the land. Mm-hmm. It was, everything was to be used. There wasn't any real thought and discussion about the land being a biological, having health. And uh, repel, uh, uh, Leopold was seeing much broader uh, under, saying a much broader understanding. Yeah. We used to use the expression, the long-term capacity of the land to support a variety of life and culture. Mm. Mm. That was one of our phrases that got into proposals. Yeah, <laughs> Culture, I like that. Yeah, you, you a variety of life and culture. Yeah. And of course, that's another thing. The whole concept of sustainable agriculture in our understanding use of it was influenced by Wendell Berry. Mm-hmm. Because he he was not a scientist, he uh, he saw community and farming as the important mm-hmm. important part of culture, yeah. and he was very influential in the way we thought about it. Well, and adding culture is very important on there because it gets it uh, goes beyond this idea that that can be part of the frankly environmental movement sometimes in that. People don't belong in that scenic landscape kind of idea that the perfect uh, uh, calendar mm-hmm. uh, of the mm-hmm. mountains shouldn't have a human any sign of human beings in it. But uh, you know, which makes a beautiful picture. But regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture, whatever you want to call it, is is getting at that idea that we are part of that system, that we can be part of that system. It's not an either or kind of thing. It's not just this the pure wilderness or the kind of industrial landscape kind of thing. I have thought that that's one of the things, well, urban people who start learning about agriculture begin learning about the crop systems and how 
destructive they are. I think probably they start with being totally disgusted by large-scale confinement of animals. Right. And then they understand that the millions of acres and two crops. But what they don't understand often and just really surprises them is how uh, communities have disappeared so that congressional districts get bigger and bigger and schools are farther and farther apart and children are denied. I mean, you, you, you get into the cultural implications of industrial agriculture and you really see the destruction and that can be communicated to people who aren't biologically oriented maybe, but when they realize that, that they start thinking about it. At least I've had that experience. Yeah, yeah. No. I think one of the things, I wanted to go back on a circle a little. One of the things that I think is influencing the discussion about regenerative agriculture is the uh, discussion in Minnesota about water quality and how farming is hurting water quality that affects people in cities. Hmm. There's we People in cities... Well, that's that's not a good concept. People in cities. Let's just say, the non-farmers. Uh, the non-farmers. The, the and I'm not a farmer, <laughs> but the growing there is a growing understanding in our state and state laws trying to address it that our water is terrible. That water runs off the agricultural regions into the soil, mm -hmm. into the rivers, and that water's contaminated. We need to do something about it. So the idea of cover crops and holding water in the soil has a broader appeal that way than it than it used to. I, I think we, we talked about rotation of crops, mm -hmm. but there wasn't this concept of continual living cover and keeping roots in the in the ground at all times. Yeah. That's the real I think that's the real benefit of this new regenerative movement that we didn't really have in when we did the what was the research we did in the nineties with the Farmers at LSP. Oh, the monitoring team. Yeah. The monitoring team. Yeah. So that... Where the farmers, we kind of brought together, I know George Booty and some other folks at LSP brought together farmers with scientists and with natural resource professionals and uh, ornithologists and mm -hmm. insect experts and tried to f figure out a way the farmers could monitor how sustainable their farms were, how regenerative they were. And they had to monitor them based on not only the yield, um, the income, mm -hmm. but um, the water quality and the the, the birds. The, that was just sort of a measure of what's the uh, ecological health of their farm yeah. if there were birds. Yeah. So that was a broad understanding. Yeah. So speaking of culture, <laughs> I think one of the funnest things I've read recently was a talk you gave at, of all places, um, the 1988 Soybean Seed and Seed Research Conference in Chicago. And it was really interesting, and you've talked to me about this before, you were kind of brought in to kind of be the poster child for saying, hey, yeah, look, we're looking at conservation uh, a little bit. But then... <laughs> It turns out they had right speak right after you, James Mosley, who was a farmer, and he had worked to, for the USDA, and I actually had written about him in a previous life uh, and uh, was involved in the seed industry in, in Indiana. He, he had to then kind of almost, it wasn't like he was countering what you had said, but he was giving the other view of how agriculture could kind of reach 
natural resource goals. And he was kind of representing the view of, yeah, we can tweak around the edges of the soy, current soybean, corn soybean system and still get reach these natural resource goals that we want. You know, you're, and to read your, to, for one thing, your talk is much longer because you did a lot more research and you get, had to give the history, but then you also said, here's the, uh, some of the options we have out there, some of the, what's going to, what could happen if we really look at this on a deeper level? Could you just talk about that experience of that was in 1988 and it was kind of fairly early in the sustainable ag movement. And, you know, you come in there and I think you said at one point you watched as people got up and walked out mm -hmm. <laughs> one after another. <laughs> well, also remember, I think I was the only, there may have been one or two other women among yeah. 500 people, but I was the only woman. Yeah. Uh, I was certainly the only woman speaker, <laughs> and I didn't talk about soil conservation, conservation. I talked about some of the ideals of an agriculture that would be sustainable, and I tried to, inter I, I thought about it as I remember, and that's been a long time ago, Brian, mm -hmm. tried to uh, say there's a role for plant breeders. Mm -hmm. You did. Uh, you and, did talk about that. And plant breeders don't just have to increase yield or improve stock strength or whatever, they could also think about how plant, how uh, crops could, could mix with other crops uh, in, in, the, in the plant breeding mm -hmm. part of it. But I was in a ballroom in a big hotel in Chicago, really fancy hotel. Of course, at that time, walking to the front and standing at that podium and looking out at the ballroom, I remember it just seemed so big. <laughs> and there were, there were no women, or if there were, there was just one or two. But as I was doing my talk, and people realized what I was talking about, I was talking about something entirely different than what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And they weren't interested in that. They were there to learn about more opportunities to sell more seed and what people were interested in. So they, they just, they weren't interested. So they got up and left. And it was very, very disheartening yeah. to keep going for as long as the talk took and watch people just get up and leave while I'm speaking until the ballroom was practically empty. It wasn't a ballroom. I think it was an auditorium of mm -hmm. some kind, but it was just pretty big. But I, I just think that that is an example, and you talked about this before, the pushback that we got from the land grant system, from industry, mm -hmm. because we weren't just talking about, again, kind of tweaking around the edges no. of the current system. We were talking about something new. And in order to do that, you have to call out the current system a little bit. And so that was a real, that was just a prime example of that, I think. Well, there was quite a bit of conflict for a few years uh, with land grant universities, not just from the point of view of those of us who were talking about a totally different kind of agriculture. But farmers were really upset. Economically, they, they felt like the economists, the ag economists, really led them astray. Mm -hmm. And there were demonstrations at Kansas State University. I don't know whether there were at Minnesota at the time, mm -hmm. but there were farmer demonstrations and loud protests. Uh, they felt like they were being led down the wrong path. They didn't know what the right path was, but they knew that they weren't really being helped. And I think it was a transition that the land-grant universities continued making, and farmers were just beginning to understand that they were really now beholden to the chemical industry and the, and the machinery industry, mm -hmm. and that 
they were less and less concerned about what the farmer thought. Yeah. As, as we're talking about sustainable, regenerative, I know that, you know, we talked about a permanent agriculture. There was different words and phrases thrown around, and you talked about how sustainable kind of got loose on society, and that rolled off the tongue better. So that was the one that we used for so many years, and now regenerative is kind of the thing that uh, we're hearing more and more people use. In some ways, and you know this from because you know the power of words, it almost doesn't matter what word it is. Like what when you look it up in the dictionary, if it really defines exactly what we're talking about, it's what people associate with it. That it, it, it could be just about any word, even a made-up word, if as long as people it, it fires people's imagination a little bit. I mean, if that makes sense. Well, I think it has to be close. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think it could be any <laughs> word. No, I think it has to be a word that people can have mental images in their heads of what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. But words do matter, and the one of the things that I think is important is if regenerative is the word that people want to use and it describes what we are talking about now in terms of soil health and cover crops, that's fine. But it wasn't what we were talking about when we started using sustainable Mm -hmm. because we were talking about the long-term capacity of the land we were thinking much more broadly and and maybe the good thing about this is that regenerative is a word that's being developed and promoted and used by farmers Mm -hmm. where when we started talking about sustainable these this word was promoted and developed by scient a scientist who was a dreamer and never afraid to go beyond the way other people thought, but not a regular farmer. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's one of the ways that regenerative has great advantage now in being spread among the right people Mm -hmm. to make changes, the farmers. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what, talking about going back to soil health, that's what really struck me was farmers have led a lot of that movement in the soil health movement. Yes. And it's the scientists who've been trying to play catch up a little bit and, and try to figure out, oh, why are they fi- getting certain soil health benefits or cer- certain things happening with their soil health on their farm? And it's really interesting mm-hmm. to see that instead of the top down, I'm the expert from the land grant or from the government. And I, you know, this is what I learned when I got my PhD or whatever. And now this is the way it's going to work on your, fa- on, on your farm and every other farm the same way. What do we do about, I just opened the the Star Tribune newspaper the other day, and there was an article about an initiative being put on by Cargill where they used the word regenerative. I mean, what do we do about when that word gets co-opted? We certainly saw it was sustainable, Mm -hmm. and we've seen it with Mm -hmm. conservation, with a lot of words. But what do we do about this idea of the industrial system co-opting that? Uh, Is it? Is it a good thing or a bad thing, or, or what? Are, is there anything to do about it? It's a bad thing, I think. I remember going to conferences here in uh, the Twin Cities at the History Center, I think, where there was a big Monsanto uh, element, and they were talking about sustainable agriculture. They had a woman working for Monsanto who was somehow some kind of executive on sustainable mm-hmm. agriculture. And I think we kind of laughed it away, in a way. Everybody could see through this. They're trying to use the language and and come in and, and make us think that they're 
doing something wonderful when they just want to sell chemicals. Yeah. Let's, let's get over all that yeah. stuff. So I think we have to laugh at them <laughs> and, and, and let them know that, no, you're not fooling us. Yeah. You really want to sell us something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe do a better job of getting out there and saying, this is what it really means. This, and these are examples of it on the land. This isn't just a marketing gimmick kind of thing. A key, I think a key piece of, the, of a truly regenerative agriculture is the local food element because that gives local consumers a reason to care Yes. what kind of practices are taking place on that land and whether that not that farm is regenerative or sustainable or whatever you want to call it. And it gives people a chance to know farmers and to know to get out on to know what a farm is. Mm-hmm. But that involves all uh, it, that sort of implies smaller communities also, which to me it's it's uh, one of the saddest parts of what's happened to agriculture is the loss of the rural communities, and uh, those were places um, where people counted on each other and depended on each other and took care of each other, and uh, with the huge livestock facilities now, it's it's very different. Yeah, yeah. I guess what gives you hope? Well, I like reading the land stewardship letter. I like the interviews you do of farmers. I like reading uh, about their systems and how enthusiastic they are. And I like knowing that there are field days where farmers get together and they're talking about systems that work for them. Mm -hmm. They aren't just talking about prices or high yields. They're talking about their quality of life, too. That was one of the terms we always used in talking about sustainable agriculture. But it's clear to me that the farmers who are caring about soil health and making the connection to human health, are thinking about quality of life. And they've improved their own quality of life just by being able to share the things they're excited about. And, and so I think that the connection that Land Stewardship Project has with real farmers, people who are, who are earning their living and taking care of the land, being stewards in the tradition of Land Stewardship Project as it was begun, I think that's how... I think the most hopeful thing is that uh, these people exist and that when you tell their stories, you give hope because we're reminded that the large companies and the people who are live in Brazil and process the meat in our country, they aren't in charge of everything. <laughs> Personally, after doing this interview, I'm settling on the term regenerative. But no matter what we call it, the key point is that we work to create an agricultural system that does not destroy the very resources it relies on, including people. Check out LSP's webpage at landstewardshipproject.org for more information on farming systems that build a resilient landscape and healthy communities. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. Or you could call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize.
Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. You're not a member? Visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.